Thanks to Audible and the new Audible Original Power Moves for supporting Molly Full Answers. Power Moves by Adam Grant is now available, and you can get it for free when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash foolpower, or text foolpower to 500-500. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello. Today's the first in a series of episodes we're going to do this year that are going to tackle major life events with the help of a Motley Fool financial planner. So, helping us today, who's going to kick it all off, is Sean Gates and Mowage. <laughs> Mowage. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, what's up, bro? Well, I got three things for you, Allison. First of all, number one, the surprisingly small benefits of successful market timing. So now we regularly tell our members they shouldn't try to market time, and we occasionally cite studies. We did it in the in like the two episodes, ago. right? Right, Sean right, took right, some right, right. Task, okay. Uh, but that won't stop us from reminding you again, especially <laughs> when a new study comes out. And this one is courtesy of investment management firm Albert Bridge Capital, based in London. So. Here's the setup. Imagine you're 25 years old and you're going to invest $1,000 into the stock market every year for the next 30 years. And you are so good that you pick the absolute best day to invest in each and every year. Now, they estimate that the odds of that happening are 1 in 1,240, followed by 69 zeros. Oh. So, in other words, oh. not very likely. But hey, you are that good. So, if you had done this for the past 30 years, you've reached age 55. Investing that $1,000 every year, you would have $155,000. Not bad, but what if you were the complete opposite? What if instead you invested on the very worst day every year for the last 30 years? How much would you have? So you invested $30,000. Would you have $50,000? Would you have $75,000? You would actually have $122,000. Oh, so that's a difference of about thirty. A difference of about $30,000. Compared the best to the worst. So, of course, having that extra $30,000 would be better. But still, the person who did the absolute worst market timing every single year still turned $30,000 into $122,000. Pretty good. All right, number two, over 60 and crushed by student loan debt. Now, that's the headline from a recent Wall Street Journal article with some pretty astonishing stats. So, the 60 and older crowd owes $86 billion in student loans. It's it's either debt they took on for their kids, or they went back to school themselves, especially like during the Great Recession. People thought, I lost my job, I'm going to go back to school. But that's up 161% from 2010. Hmm. It's the biggest increase of any age group. And because many are struggling to pay this debt, the federal government is actually taking some of it from their benefits. So, in 2015, 40,000 people aged 65 or older had their Social Security or tax refunds garnished because they were defaulting on student loan debt. And that's up 362% from the previous decade. Um, Total debt owed by the 60 and older crowd, and that includes credit cards, auto loans, and things like that, is up 84% since 2010. Um, So, I always have mixed feelings about stuff like this. These types of articles usually bring in individual stories, right? And you see the individual stories and you can't help but think like, man, you made some bad decisions. Like, mm-hmm. there's, They talked about a guy who, um, after his uh, restaurant failed in New York City, he went to the New York Institute for Art and still owes $30,000 a decade later. 
He is now 66 years old. He only lives off Social Security. And because of all this, he lives on seven. He has limited his food budget to $7 a day. And then there's a told story of another guy who's 65, retired a year ago, still owns student loans, but also $40,000 in credit card debt. So whenever I hear these stories, I think, like, you know, I don't know why you thought you should retire. Maybe they have health issues. They didn't say that in the article. And if you have health issues, I have great sympathy for that. But I do wonder why sometimes these people decide to retire in these circumstances. On the other hand, it does tell other stories of people with all this debt. And like one guy was saying, like, it was hard to say no to my daughter because her, she got her heart set on a school and she worked hard to get there. And I, to, like, I totally understand that. I feel a lot of sympathy for that. So I bring this up particularly now because this is a time of year when millions of kids and their families are finding out which schools they're going to get accepted to. The Brocamp family the Brocamp, you guys included. Too, yeah. yeah, so we got a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks to, to wait all this out. But basically, we're all making decisions that could affect our finances for decades. So please, please, please do all you can to get a college degree with as little debt as possible. The classic rule of thumb is to borrow no more than what you can reasonably expect to earn in your first year of college. And the other lesson of this is if you have any debt, work as hard as you can to have it paid off before you retire. And number three, why people do and don't save for retirement. So we all know that the average person hasn't been doing a good enough job. So what are the other priorities of these non-savers or under-savers? And a recent survey might have some answers. It was conducted by AARP, along with the Ad Council Saving for Retirement campaign, and examined the habits and aspirations of moderate-income working adults ages 40 to 59. So, some of the key results. Only 47% identified retirement as among their top three financial priorities. So, obviously, they have something else that they think is more important. When asked to identify their number one priority, what was it? Paying down debt. So, again, the debt is causing troubles. Um, when non-savers and under-savers were asked what's preventing them from saving more, the number one response was, I did not have enough left over after basic expenses. And the second most common was, unexpected expenses came up, which brings us back to previous episodes and the emergency fund. And what happens well, if you don't have an emergency fund, you can't save retirement, or you go into debt because you have to turn to credit cards. So, getting an emergency fund is important there. Now, when respondents were asked what helped them save for retirement, so these are the people who are doing a good job, the most common response was, I increased my contribution rate to my employer-sponsored retirement plan so that I could take the full advantage of the company match. And study and stu- after study has shown that the match has a big influence mm. on saving behavior. So if you are an employer, if you work in an HR department, you own a company, and you want to help your employees save more, if you boost the match... Or even stretch it so you give the same amount of money, but instead of saying like you only contribute, you only have to contribute six percent to get that full match. If you move it up to eight or ten, people will start to save more. And there's no benefit to a company offering a 401k match, right? Like they only do it as an added benefit. Just all, it's just for an added benefit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, um, some research from the last uh, survey by the Callan Group, which is a, a benefits consultant group, showed that last year. There were about 78% of companies that were boosting their match, and they expect that to continue this year, too. So that's good news. Uh, and then the second most common response to the question about what helped people save retirement, they said, I got a raise, bonus, or extra income, and put all or some of it into my retirement savings account. That reminds us of a story listener David G. sent us earlier last year. Uh, folks may remember he was the guy who was in the military 
And he learned very early on that whenever he got a raise, he put half of it towards saving more to retirement and was allowed to spend the other half. And so that by the time he reached age 55, he had a savings rate of 42%. Mm -hmm. And he's on solid ground. And then the last bit from this survey, it asks adults, uh, what is the greater likelihood in your life that you will save enough for retirement or something else? So, for example, what's more likely, that you'll save enough for retirement or you'll run a marathon? 30% said it's more likely they'll run a marathon. 30% said it's more likely that they'll get a personal robot assistant than be able to save enough for retirement. <laughs> You're not going to be able to afford a personal <laughs> robot assistant. 40% said it's more likely that an astronaut will walk on Mars than they'll save enough. 37% said it's more likely that disco will come back in style. What is wrong? Why do people then, beat up on disco? It's fun. It's the best. It's, it's fun best. music, people. Just leave it alone. And my favorite, 28%, 28% said it's more likely that Bigfoot will be confirmed real than they'll be able to save enough to retire. What, what percent believes in Bigfoot? Well, they believe it's 28%. It's, there's a greater chance that they'll find a Bigfoot than they have a chance of retiring comfortable. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. Now, I'm a person who, as a kid, was kind of obsessed with Bigfoot, so I certainly hope they discover a Sasquatch before I pass away. Really? But, oh, yeah. You I love care, why, would you, why do you care about I don't know. I just Sam love that Squinch. stuff. <laughs> <Sam> Squatch. <laughs> but the bottom line is... We don't know if there's such a Bigfoot, but I do know this. If you save as much as you can, you may not be able to retire when you want and exactly how you want, but you will increase the chances that you'll be able to retire eventually. A year ago, I mentioned a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research entitled The Power of Working Longer. It found that those who delay retirement from age 62 to age 70 can increase their retirement income by 40 to as much as 100% wow. just by delaying. But part of that is because you have more years to save. So the more you save now, no matter how much it is, the more you'll be able to boost your income and or move up your retirement date. And that, Allison, is what's up. Thanks to Audible for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Power Moves by New York Times bestselling author Adam Grant is available on Audible, and you can get it for free when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash Fool Power, or text Fool Power to 500 500. In Power Moves, Adam interviews two dozen major CEOs and leaders to talk about how power is changing today and the best ways to use it effectively. You'll hear practical ideas and insights from leaders like Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook, Satya Nadala of Microsoft, Mary Barra of GM, and David Solomon of Goldman Sachs. We are big fans of Adam Grant here at The Motley Fool, uh, including his previous books, The Originals and Give and Take. And so now you can get Power Moves by Adam Grant. It's available now on Audible. Get it for free when you sign up for a free Audible trial at audible.com slash foolpower or text foolpower, all one word, to 500-500. So I did write in my intro to this section, Mowage. Mowage <laughs> is what brings us together today. Anyone? Anyone? What's that from? Of course, everyone who's listening knows what it's from, and if they I don't, so. then they need to go watch The Princess Bride or read the book because that is also how he talks oh, in really? the book. Yeah, it's I actually written read like the book, that. But, yeah. yeah. So yes, remember. it's the second Tuesday of the month, and every second Tuesday of the month going forward, we're inviting a financial planner from Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool, to talk us through a major life event like having a baby, buying a house, and 
having a loved one pass away. Oh. oh. Well, today we're going to talk about marriage. And joining us is Sean Gates, one of the most romantic men I know. <laughs> or maybe the most newly married financial planner. One of those two. Both can be true. So, Sean, you're going to walk us through um, some lessons that people should heed when getting married when it comes to their finances, both from your personal experience and also your experience as a financial planner. Yes. So, let's kick it off. What's the first piece of advice that you want to talk about? Yeah. Bestow. So, <laughs> wisdom. So, I think the, the first piece of advice that you can often read about that held true for me, because you always wonder how much of that stuff is true. But the first one that held true for me was very much like financial planning. You should have conversations about one another's goals, and especially short-term, medium, and long-term goals. And why this is important is, number one, you start to understand each other better, what you want to accomplish, make sure that you have some commonalities, and that the differences that you might have aren't too stark that it could cause some friction on down the road. But more importantly, common goals that people have are financial related. And you want to make sure that you can continue along the path towards your goals. So, for example, for me, I'm very much an adherent to the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early movement. And so, ever since I was 24, I have been working diligently to try and retire and end my working career and have money for the rest of my life uh, at age 40. And and marriage created an interesting dynamic in that my wife does not share that same goal uh, directly. So she'll be comfortable working until normal retirement age, let's say. And so just I think one of the lessons that I learned early on is that I was very clear with her that this is a goal for me and understood it. And then we got married. But what then revealed itself was I wasn't I didn't relay how seriously I was about it. I mean, I am like, <laughs> I am going to be successful at this goal one way or if another. If I have to live in a broom closet at the Motley Fool for and, my retirement. And practically yes. speaking, at least when you and I first knew each other, you were saving well over half your income to accomplish this goal. Correct, and still am. And so that that is you know that, that kind of ties into this whole thing because she's not she's a good saver, no question. But but I'm on the abnormal end of in so many ways. <laughs> Good ways, so many good ways. Yeah, and so I think you know, and and it's it's a common thing in the fire community that you tell someone that you're going to do this, and they're like, "Oh yeah, sure." Like you aren't married, so things will change, or you haven't had kids, and things will change. But I've been so dedicated to this cause that um, it's going to happen, and so I'm going to drag my my wife along, kicking and screaming. But. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so anyway, Maybe I think we need to like swap out our expert for this episode. <laughs> we, can we do that? Can I call an audible on this one? You're out, kid. I'm sorry. I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. No, all right, fine. Keep talking. We're stuck with you. Uh, well, I think for you're you're very deliberate about how you approach money, right? Like this Correct. is a commitment. This is you know exactly how you're going to achieve your goal of retirement by forty. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't even really have a good grasp on their temperament when it comes to money, or they don't really think that they just think it's easy to assume these are my habits with money. I assume everyone's the same way, and I don't even have a good grasp on. I'm going to marry a man who doesn't like to buy a new sweater every week. Why? I don't know. That's I didn't even know that was a thing, right? It's totally, yeah. And I think that that's why I think I'm advocating that having these conversations around goals can start to develop that understanding. 
of your own temperament with money and then your partner's temperament with money and just kind of find common ground. And it's a good practice to have. For the record, I do have a problem with wanting to buy a new sweater every week. <laughs> and and my husband has given me the space to do that, just like I give him the space to buy uh, robot parts and other things like that. Exactly. <laughs> That's actually in here. Robot parts. It's a line item. <laughs> All right, what's your next piece of advice? Yeah, so the the next piece of advice that you read about that is very good advice is to be upfront, be clear about your financial details. So kind of going through line by line and saying, here's how much student loans I have, here's my budget that I have had as a single person and, and might have going forward, here's my credit card debt. All of that stuff is very good to do because it gives you full visibility into what you're getting into, and, and you need to know that. It also creates a, a sense of honesty early on, which is critical, I think. Um, everyone ag- would agree. Um, but I think further, uh, you can actually start to understand your partner's values. And so this was a really stark shift for me, I think. And a little bit of this is because my partner is not an American citizen. But the definition of family in India is, in my opinion, a little bit different than in, in America. So I have a very small family I have a good relationship with my my siblings, but it's not a very, very close relationship. And in India, you have that same relationship with extended members of your family. So your cousins are often called your sisters or your or your brothers, and, and you treat everyone in a tight-knit community. And so I knew this going into the marriage, and it's actually one of the things I love about my wife, um, but I should have seen coming that it creates its own set of interesting knock-on effects, which is that there have been times already in our short marriage where, and, and there are pros and cons, but there have been times in our marriage where we might have to spend money that I didn't think we would have had to spend had I not thought this through. So having to host guests in the city because they just happen to be in town and can then see everyone so that we have to put them up in a hotel. And you know that might be 500 bucks for that month that you weren't planning on spending that just kind of creep up. And there's a whole bunch of those. Um, but I think the broader point is that as you go through the details of your financial situation, try and glean the, the values of your partner so that you can try and anticipate some of these unknown expenses that you get comfortable with. Is there any sort of um, checklist or framework or anywhere people can go to do, do that running list of checking out your financial details? And Because this feels like this is something where you need to sit down with a checklist and be like, okay, student aid, do you have it? Yes? No? Okay, check. Next, like, It'd be easy to be like, oh yeah, no, I'm fine. <laughs> and then, and then you're like, oh yeah. Aside from my fifty thousand worth of credit card debt, like, right? T- totally. And I think so. In one of the things that we want to go through are resources that help people. And one that I listed that I think is critical, which gets to your point, is the automated budgeting tools. And the reason that the I know we've talked, talk, you guys have talked about those. I've talked about those a number of times. But things like Mint or Personal Capital, any kind of automated budgeting software, um, you need a budget. So those budgeting apps are extremely helpful because in those moments, you can actually just be like, okay, what's my net worth? And net worth is the financial snapshot that I think explains the possible you know, debts, incomes, out, you know, all of that good stuff. 
and that's the place to go, and you don't have to remember, right? I mean, if I put you on the spot and was and said, tell me all of your stuff, you might have just forgotten about a thing, and I'm not going to hold you accountable for it. Whereas if you have these tools, it's all there for you, you just pull it up. So I think that's great. And might I also recommend the Foolywed game, which you could find if you Google it, and we talked about this two years ago on the podcast. Yeah, we did that a long time ago. But it's basically 10 questions about money that each person does separately, and then you compare results, like how much money do we need to be happy? How much can you spend without having to ask the other spouse? Prioritize these various things, retirement, house, things like that, in order of what's important to you, and then you'll find out how much you're on the same page. That's awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a great resource. We have a few of them at the pool. We do. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what's your next piece of advice? Great. And then I think the last one is, and this is becoming more and more common, but I would say lean into the prenuptial agreement conversation. Ooh, that's a toughie. Really? Controversial take with Sean Gates, really? Yeah, and I should say, I'm not holding myself out to a higher standard. We failed at this. We did not have an explicit prenuptial agreement conversation, but we had a quasi-conversation about what things would look like if the marriage didn't go as well as we had hoped. But I think the... The problem with that is, I think there's a couple problems with that. Number one, you typically don't want to have that conversation in the you know swoon phase of a relationship because it just puts a damper on things. Um, but I think it sets you up to have a potential later conversation, and this is something that people don't talk about as nearly as much, which is if you don't do a prenuptial, you're not a bad person. You can actually enact a postnuptial agreement. And so it's very similar to a prenuptial agreement. It has a lot of the same kind of information that you would go over what you want your assets to be disposed of after you separate, all of that stuff. Um, But if you've structured yourself to have prenuptial agreement conversations, you can have that postnuptial agreement conversation after having learned about each other in the day-to-day finance of your lives. So, you know, you've gotten married, you've spent six months or 12 months with each other, you understand each other's spending habits better. And it sets you up to, to enact a good postnuptial agreement instead of c- kind of being unsure about what you would put in a prenuptial because you haven't gotten married yet. You don't know enough to, to put it together and not hurt one another's feelings potentially. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's true. I mean, many of the things you find out about a person when it comes to money, you don't find out until you get married. Yeah. That is so awkward. Because now that I really know you financially, uh, I would like a postnuptial agreement, please, because I just have some feelings. Love you. We just need Mario. It should just be called the Mowage Agreement. The Mowage Agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, let's move on to some mistakes that maybe you have experienced or maybe in your experience as a financial planner have noticed other people often making. Yeah, great. So the the first one is letting one person in the relationship be the quote unquote finance person, mm-hmm. um, and and this I run into all the time. Where I'll be speaking to folks who are going to retire, and let's say they're actually let's say they're retired and they're now twenty years into retirement, and I'll get a call from the finance person, and they'll say, hey. You know, I, I haven't needed a money manager in the past because I've been dealing with the finances, but now I'm worried that I'm going to die and my wife or husband won't know what to do. And I'm like, well, you know, that's not an ideal position to find yourself in. Your, your, your partner should know more about the finances that you don't need to hire a third party to just get abreast of the situation. It still might be warranted to have a, a manager involved, but 
but you don't want to just throw this on someone else and and kind of have them have to talk to a third party to get that information. So I think ha- keeping each other honest in in the finances is is important. We recently had a family, uh, some family friends in their 80s. Husband handled all the money, had a stroke, and the wife is just totally lost. Doesn't know how to write checks. Doesn't know even know where to find the checks. Honestly, doesn't even know how to put gas in the car because that was something the husband always did. She's totally lost, and he's not in any capacity to help her. So certainly, it would have been much better for her to be more involved before this point. Yeah, and I would say one kind of further knock-on effect there is that sometimes the the parents will assume that the kids will step in and help, but a lot of the times the, the kids are worse off than the parents in terms of knowledge of finances because families typically don't talk about finances or they have a completely different idea of what the money should do for the familial wealth. And so I think as a couple, you should be cohesive about it early on as quickly as you can. Uh, Do you recommend having... Well, Bro used to do the... Didn't you used to do the State of the Union address Mm -hmm. for your family? Like Like, how do you recommend they go about staying on the same page? I think, yeah, something like an annual check-in. You know, in financial planning, you'll do quarterly or annual check-ins with the clients. I think very similarly with husband and wife, just have a, a time-based uh, system where you say, okay, we're going to review our finances together, and, and we'll just talk about everything that happened over the course of the year. Way back when, in 2000, both my wife and I worked at The Fool, and we co-wrote an article called A Couple's Financial Manifesto, and it was one of the most popular articles for that year. And I went back and read it recently, because this is quite a while ago, and we were doing it monthly. Wow. wow. Um, we don't do it anymore because we, f- we have a pretty good sense of, of each other's financial habits and what our priorities are. But doing that in the beginning was very helpful. Yeah. And I think as you go through that process, a more frequent check-in is probably going to help build the processes in place, and then you can fall off, you know, go slower. Yeah. All right. What's another mistake to avoid? Yeah. So the the other mistake that I see people make is, and I th- this might be more generational, but combining finances too aggressively. So I think one of the things that I hear most frequently when I'm talking with married couples is that one of the things from a financial perspective that has benefited their just peace of mind and comfort with one another is ha- having some sort of selfish budget where you know there's a thousand dollars that they're not really necessarily going to account for for the month that they can spend on whatever they want um, and that way you don't have to get permission from your spouse or partner uh, to go spend on something that you want and and I think that's just a really nice feature to have and one last mistake I think you brought yeah so this one's a little bit controversial as well, but this would be letting the more emotional person be the finance person. And in my experience, and I've been doing this for 10 plus years now, men typically men in the in the relationship tend to be the investment managers. So so they control the retirement accounts, the stock picking, all of that stuff. Women tend to control the day-to-day finances, so they'll do the budgeting, you know, what are we going to spend this month, that sort of thing. It's not always, but this is just a kind of a commonality that I've seen. Um, And what's also true, anecdotally, is that men tend to be more emotional with money. So, So men are often worse at the investment side of the equation. And so I sometimes will recommend to folks that they consider flipping roles. What's nice about this is that 
the other partner can learn the skill set of the other. So it's just getting that education. Um, but there's actually good research. To sh- Fidelity did a fairly massive study where it showed that women tend to outperform men with their accounts by about 0.4, so about 40 basis points. Um, it doesn't sound like a lot, but over time, compounded, it, it can be quite significant. And so you know, it's just a good thing to try and make sure that the right person is doing the right job for your fi- family. Yeah, I think we've found in our relationship that I I do have a better track record, mostly because I don't fiddle with it. Exactly. I just I just buy stuff and then I I don't come back ever again. Whereas Ron likes to fiddle with it. He likes to buy and sell and buy and and I mean when I say buy and sell, I mean six months later, maybe a year later. Whereas I'm still holding on to the very first stocks I ever bought seven years ago. Um, and so he has a love of it as a hobbyist investor that I don't, which is where I probably get my outperformance. Yeah, and I think you know, I, I, there's a number of ways that you could look at. It. I think another way that you could look at it is that uh, I think women tend to be more self-aware of what they don't know, where where their expertise lies, whereas men tend to be more overconfident. I'm sure people will take uh, offense to some of this, but uh, I think that leads to your point, which is that you don't. Claim to be an expert on investing, so you're just going to, you know, invest normally, provide, you know, invest in index funds, the common wisdom, and then just forget about it, and you'll end up doing better. Coincidentally, CreditCards.com just released its latest financial infidelity poll, and one of the findings is that 44% of those who are living with a romantic partner believe they're better money managers than their partners, whereas mm. 12% think they're worse. Men are more likely to say they're better at it that they're better than their partners, and women more more likely to say they're worse. Hmm. Men are definitely more confident about money. Uh, for other fun facts of this, 19% of U.S. adults who are, who are in some sort of live-in relationship, that's 29 million people, are hiding some sort of a checking, savings, or credit card account. Wait, 19% of people are hiding money from their... Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 20% of all the survey respondents feel that a partner hiding a secret bank account is worse than cheating. physically cheating. Yeah. 45% disagree that it's worse, and 35% eh, it's about the same. <laughs> it's not great. It's not great. It's not good. It's not, not good. great. Yes, millennials apparently are the sneakiest. They're twice as likely to be hiding money than everyone else. I have six hidden checking accounts. <laughs> <laughs> in my brief experience. Checking is so boring. I, in- I just love to write checks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so you, uh, you talked already with some recommendations for uh, trackers going through looking at your spending. What are the recommendations you have for our listeners out there for other resources? So it sounds like the bro has set me up with the what is the the Fullywed game the Fullywed game that sounds awesome I think there, there actually I was trying to prepare for this podcast and there aren't a ton of great resources for this especially online there, there's usually just message boards and things like that which are hard to kind of get to the heart of the issue um, there are a couple good books just physical books that I would recommend one that actually. Uh, is recommended by a colleague of ours, Chris Harris, that he'll he'll set up with new, newlyweds is called the Prenuptial for Lovers book. <laughs> Which is like the most amazing. What's Prenuptials. Do you have this? Do you, do you have it pulled up so you can see the subtitle? It's the subtitle is something like the Romantic Guide to Prenuptials or something like that. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty awesome title. Yeah. But when I polled people, I got quite a few hits for that. So I think that one's good. And then I found another one that I thought was was relevant. It's actually written by, I believe, some attorneys. Um, but it's called I Do, You Do, But Just Sign Here, 
This book is a little bit more specific because it talks about both prenuptials and postnuptials, mm-hmm. which I think, again, you should pay attention to postnuptials because I think there's a taboo around prenuptials. And, you know, it's not an irrevocable decision. You know, if you don't have a prenuptial, you're not screwed. Mm-hmm. So. As a financial planner, do you ever find yourself in, in between a couple? Like where you're trying to help reconcile two two sides or playing marriage money counselor? Not as often. I think I think f- that type of finance is more personal, so they don't tend... I think a financial counselor might mm-hmm. be someone that gets involved in real time in between a marriage. But what I will often b- find myself in the position of is either being the survivor of a, d- a divorce, so, mm-hmm. so like... They'll have been one of the couples will have said, "Well, we loved your work. I'm going to continue with you." Whereas the other's like, "No, I hated you. I'm going to move on to a different <laughs> advisor." And it just, I think, it speaks to how different people, you know, in in 30 year marriages, where someone leaves you that you thought you knew well, and it was because they didn't like what you were doing the whole time. You get dumped too. <laughs> I get dumped too. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's so sad. Oh, it's an interesting threesome you had going there. <laughs> So I'll just add one more thing, and this will be a common theme through a lot of these life events, and that is many life events involve you needing to update your estate plan. Mm. So chances are, if you while you were single and you you had to fill out your beneficiary forms for your 401k, even life insurance, anything like that, you maybe left your mom and dad because you weren't married. You definitely want to update that. And then once you're married, you want to update your will and all those types of things, and especially once you have kids. One final, like just inside baseball tip, you know, kind of. Uh, in the weeds financial tip. Yes, let's end on that. <laughs> let's end on that. Let's end on a weedy note. Go ahead. So early on in a marriage, I just happened to find myself in that situation, but it might not, be, you know, this happens with other life events, but you should look to your accountant from a tax perspective on whether or not it makes sense to file married filing separately. Uh, I find in our situation, there's a dramatic effect on the amount of tax liability that we would face if we file married filing separately versus married filing jointly. And the only reason I know that is because I'm steeped in finance. This is all I do. But if, if I wasn't a financial advisor, I would have just assumed I should file married filing jointly, and we would have missed out on you know $10,000 worth of tax liability extra that we would have paid in that arrangement. Not always true. Married filing jointly is the standard. But just be aware of it, because it could have helped your situation. Right. It's important to know that as far as the IRS is concerned, if you got married at any point during the year, you were married for the whole year, even if you got married on December 31st. Yeah, and part of the reason that you want to look at this early in a marriage, so a colleague of mine, he got married, and the wife was a teacher, and she had uh, the potential for loan forgiveness. And so that program is specific, to, uh, and so loan forgiveness and income-based repayment plans, it's specific to the income. So if she's filing single, her income is going to look very different than if you pool them together. And so in order to not lose some of those program benefits, they could file married filing separately. And so there's just it just happens that when you are coming into a relationship, you had your own individual finances, and it might make sense, given the path that you were on, to continue to have your own individual taxes for a time and other life events. 
Hey, Sean, thank you for joining us for our first episode here, Tackling Life Events. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Maybe we'll have you back in 10 years and we'll see if that prenup really did come in handy. Or is that too dark? It's too dark, isn't it? See how many of the in-laws are living with you. Way way darker. Well, our sister company, Motley Fool Wealth Management, is a registered investment advisor that can help put your financial plan and investing needs in the context of your big life transitions. You can find podcast notes and resources and even book a no-obligation appointment with the one and only Sean Gates. Is that true? That is true. Or other planners uh, by visiting (laughs) foolwealth.com slash radio. Please consider the risk, cost, and suitability of investments before choosing any investment professionals. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Motley Fool's Wealth Management does not guarantee the results of any of its advice or account management. Sean, you mind sticking around for a game? Absolutely. All right, let's do it. All right, bro loves a good tradition, so let's see how much you two know about wedding traditions from around the world. <laughs> All right. Oh, Valentine's Day is so soon. Okay, here we go. France. People who want to class up their wedding with some French traditions get ready for this. The new couple may be ready for bed, but the party isn't over until they are witnessed eating all of the leftover alcohol and food that has been collected by the guests and placed into what kind of pot? All right, let me know when you have your answer. Uh, I'm ready. Okay. You ready? Sure. Chamber pot. Is that... What do you say, Sean? I was, yeah, that was what I was going to say. You're right, a chamber pot. <laughs> By the way, it is typically an unused new chamber well, pot. Well, that's nice. <laughs> yes, and the tradition has evolved so that more commonly, it's a, just a soup of chocolate floating in champagne. If Not, it's a second marriage. In a marriage. chamber pot. Yeah. <laughs> if it's a second marriage, is it an, unu- or an unused <laughs> chamber pot? <laughs> You're going to want a new chamber Put that on the registry. Uh, the ritual is meant to supply the bride and groom with the energy they need for the wedding night, of course. Mm, yes. There we go. Now we're French. Germany, a people known for their passionate displays of love. <laughs> yeah. In a tradition known as Baumstammsagen, the couple uh, will symbolize their future life of facing obstacles together. Uh, they have to join forces to do what to a log in front of the wedding guests? <laughs> uh, is it uh, they beat it until a present comes out, just like they do at Christmas in, was it Spain? It yeah. was Spain, right? Yeah. I would have said saw. Yes, they saw it in half. (laughs) All right, let's go to Borneo to an ancient tradition. If you're a member of the Taidong tribe, for three days after your wedding, you share a house with your spouse, and both of you are forbidden to do what? Uh, Take a shower. (laughs) Saw a log? (laughs) The answer is go to the bathroom. What? Yes, neither one nor two. Technically, you're not allowed to leave the house. So this custom uh, requires constant supervision by your family and a restricted diet. It's said to bring the couple good luck in their marriage. Oh, wow. my goodness gracious. Yeah, that's not awful. All right, to China. <laughs> the Tuja people of China have a super fun tradition. It's customary for the bride to do what every day for an hour, one month before the wedding? <clears throat> Give us a hint. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Just make a guess. I would have said fast. Um, to play the Foolywood game. I don't know. Crying. Oh, I'm supposed to cry. <laughs> As the wedding draws closer, eventually her mom joins in, and then all of the women in the family, sisters, cousins, aunts, they join in the crying every day. Um, it 
it's it comes from kind of a sad tradition of when uh, young girls crying because they are forced to go into an arranged marriage. Um, <laughs> That's horrible. So the girls, it's actually more like a song, and so it's a song that young girls learn in this tribe, and then when they get married, they they go through this. Um, according to uh, tradition, every bride had to cry at her wedding, otherwise the bride's neighbors would look down upon her as a poorly cultivated girl. <laughs> I like how there's always disappointment. So, Across yeah. cultures, it's just... It's always disappointment <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and shame. All right, final stop, India. Oh, pickles. It turns out that you've got Mars in the first, second, fourth, seventh, eighth, or twelfth house of, house of your lunar chart, which means you're what's called a Menglik. If you want to have a happy marriage, you better marry what? Sean Gates. <laughs> yeah, I know. My wife is going to shame me now that I don't know the answer. This uh-huh. is also a controversial one. Can you repeat the question one more time? Uh, so, if you've got, if you are under the influence of Mars, according to your horoscope, lunar, your, yeah. your lunar chart, um, you are called a Manglic. And if you want to have a happy marriage, you have to marry what first? I'll add that word there. The god. Okay, I might give that to you. The answer is a tree, but I would have also accepted a pot or a statue of Vishnu. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that. So, according to superstition, your husband is going to die early because of Mars's influence on you. Thankfully, this only applies to first husbands. So, if you marry a tree first, all of the bad luck goes to the tree. Uh, this is pretty controversial. Um, apparently, about... I don't know, six or seven years ago, a Bollywood power couple um, was hit with some backlash when rumors spread that the woman did the tree wedding thing to get all the bad superstition out of the way. Anyway, it's a tradition that's associated with the caste system, so mm-hmm. har har, she married a tree that represents systematic oppression of millions of people over thousands of years. So, not so funny anymore, is it? No. So there you go. Oh, you guys did pretty well. Uh, sure, yeah. Thank you. That's all right. right. Okay. <laughs> Do the French people go to Bali to, or Borneo? See what we got? You can't use it. That's just mean. That would be a French person. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and always, I appreciate it. So happy to be here. Well, that's the show. It's edited matrimonially by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> Our email is answers at fool.com. And remember, if you're looking for podcast notes and resources, or if you even want to book a no-obligation appointment with one with the one and only Sean Gates or another planner with Molly Full Wealth, you can visit fullwealth.com slash radio. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.